We're going to look at Ezekiel um, 12 tonight. Twenty-eight verses. Yep. I'll begin to read at verse one. Hear God's perfect word. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, "Son of man, you live in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Therefore, son of man, prepare for yourself baggage for exile. Go into exile by day in their sight. Even go into exile from your place to another place in their sight." Perhaps they'll understand, though they are a rebellious house. Bring your baggage out by day in their sight as baggage for exile, that you'll go out at evening in their sight as those going into exile. Dig a hole through the wall in their sight, go out through it. Load the baggage on your shoulder in their sight, carry it out in the dark. You should cover your face as so that you cannot see the land, for I have set you as a sign to the house of Israel. I did so as I had been commanded. By day I brought out my baggage, like the baggage of an exile. Then in the evening I dug through the wall with my hands. I went out in the dark, carried the baggage on my shoulder in their sight. In the morning the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, What are you doing? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God. This burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem as well as all the house of Israel who are in it. Say, I am assigned to you. As I have done, so it will be done to you. They will go into exile, into captivity. The prince who is among them will load his baggage on his shoulder in the dark and go out. They will dig a hole through the wall to bring it out. He will cover his face so he cannot see the land with his eyes. I'll also spread my net over him. He'll be caught in my snare. I'll bring him to Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans. Yet he will not see it, though he will die there. I will scatter to every wind all who are around him. His helpers, all his troops, I'll draw out a sword after them. So they will know that I am the Lord when I scatter them among the nations and spread them among the countries. But I will spare a few of them from the sword. The famine, the pestilence, that they may tell all their abominations among the nations where they go, and they may know that I am the Lord. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, eat your bread with trembling and drink your water with quivering and anxiety. Then say to the people of the land, Thus says the Lord God concerning the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the land of Israel, They will eat their bread with anxiety, drink their water with horror, because their land will be stripped of fullness on account of the violence of all those who live in it. The inhabited cities will be laid waste, and the land will be a desolation, so that you will know that I am the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, what is this proverb you people have concerning the land of Israel, saying, The days are long, and every vision fails. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I will make this proverb cease, so that they will no longer use it as a proverb in Israel, but tell them, The days draw near, as well as the fulfilling of every vision. For there will no longer be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I, the Lord, will speak. Whatever word I speak will be performed. It will no longer be delayed. For in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. Furthermore, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, Behold, the house of Israel is saying, The vision that he sees is for many years from now, and he prophesies of times times far off. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, None of my words will be delayed any longer. Whatever word I speak will be performed, declares the Lord God. Amen. Let's pray. 
Gracious Holy God, what a, a terribly sobering word you have for your people here tonight. And we pray that we might, by your grace, be those people that have ears and we hear and have eyes and we see. We see the realities of sin, our sin, and we see the truth of your Son, Christ, our Savior from sin. Help us, Almighty God, in the midst of this judgment passage, see the mercies of, of you, O God, that we enjoy in the Christ of God. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we looked at Ezekiel um, 11. We broke up chapter Ezekiel 11 into two parts, I think, right? We dealt with 1 through 13. That was one section that we looked at. It was a judgment section. And I didn't want to mingle last week's passage, um, 11, 14 through 25, in, in with that. I wanted a standalone passage uh, what that section was dealing with was uh, a promise of divine mercy. If you remember, God said to his people, which he's saying here, um, he's saying to his people that he promised to save his people while they were in Babylon. And that he promised that he would save them out of Babylon. Not only would he take them out of the land, he would actually take the Babylon out of them. When they were dwelling in the land, Babylon got in their hearts. It's, you remember um, the people of Israel went off into Egyptian captivity. Not only were they in Egypt, but Egypt actually was in them. When God emancipated them, liberated them from the land of Egypt, what was one of the very first things they did? They made a golden calf and said, this is Jehovah, this is Yahweh, this is the God of the Bible. That was the Egyptian in them. They had learned the Egyptian ways um, and these people were in Babylon and they were learning the Babylonian, <laughs> Babylonian ways. And God says, I'm going to take you out of Babylon and I'm going to clean you from all, cleanse you from all the Babylonian heathenish uh, influences. And then God says positively, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. And the promised land was a real physical place, uh, but ultimately it pointed to, and even the people that were in the physical promised land, it's the Hebrews 11, the Hebrews 12. It points us to the heavenly promised land. I sometimes use John Bunyan's uh, celestial city. We're going to the celestial city where, where the, the builder of this place is, is it's, it's made not with human hands, but the builder is God. The architect is God. And so God is promising them, I'm saving you from something, bondage and slavery and sin, Babylon, Egypt, and I'm going to bring you back to live with me. And the greatest promise of God's mercy was, I would argue, he's going to regenerate the people. Um, he says a number of places. Uh, he, he says in Ezekiel 11, and we're going to get the classic passage in Ezekiel 36, if we live to 36, where he says, I'm going to take out your stony heart, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, and I will be your God, and you will be my children. That's just, that's just kind of salvation extrapolated. And um, it's a promise of mercy. And when God promises to save, n no one, nothing can stop him from saving. It's the administration of his divine um, mercy, I would, I would say. And so that was last week's passage. And then this week's passage, um, it's back to what we've been seeing, which is fairly customary. I want to say the first, I don't know how many chapters, 20? Are speaking directly 20-something? 
speaking directly to Israel, Judah in particular, because this is the people of Judah, um, and it's an expression of a, really a promise of divine justice. God is telling Ezekiel to tell the people that they're going to go into ex exile. So I, I want to see a few things with the connection from last week, and then with this week. Clearly, this is a another judgment sermon for Ezekiel. I really feel for Ezekiel. I'm not Ezekiel. I'm not an inspired prophet. He is a preacher. He is a herald. I am a preacher herald. Uh, It's not one-to-one, but I'm a species of what he does. And my heart breaks for him, and he's told regularly, I want you to say this thing. I want you to do this thing. And I can just, uh, I don't like to speculate, but I could almost put myself in his shoes thinking, please, Lord, not another judgment sermon. But he's told to preach yet another judgment sermon to the people of God. I would suspect that he is a highly unpopular prophet among the people of God. He's God's man. He's very, very faithful to to God and to God's people. But I would suspect that the people have grown weary of listening to this fellow talk to them about their sins. But here's the connection with last week. Promise for mercy, that God will save some. And then here's a promise for, I would say, divine justice. And God will um, condemn the rest that don't receive mercy. We live, obviously, in the New Testament epoch. We live in the fullness of times. What that means is Christ has come in the flesh. He's lived that perfect life. He's died for our sins upon the cross. He's risen. He's ascended. I would say many, 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 do I want to say most of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ have come true? Perhaps a few remain. Um, I'm thinking of the book of Daniel in particular, Christ is the rock that's been taken out of the mountain that will crush all of the kingdoms of the earth and then all of the kingdoms of the earth will become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the language of of the book of Revelation, chapter 5, maybe chapter 11. I forget which one. Certainly that one's not yet to be fulfilled. But a good deal of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ have been fulfilled. And my point with that is this. The only thing we're waiting for is the, the rest of the elect to come to Christ and for Christ to come back. So we, we live in the newer and better administration of the covenant of grace. It's a, it's a newer and a better, a freer and a fuller and a more spiritual expression of the gospel. Sometimes people say, oh, I wish I lived in the Old Testament with the types and the shadows and the priests and all that. I don't, I don't, think, you, I don't think you would. I don't think you would. Every time you sinned, you had to trot back down to the temple and offer up another goat or sheep. I don't think we would. We live in such a better expression of the covenant of grace than the people of God. Now, because of that, because we live in the fullness of times, in the clearer expression of the gospel, we are right to focus on the grace of God, the mercy of God, the Christ of God. So if you were to listen to the a preaching of a faithful preacher in the New Testament epoch, you'll have there be, be more profuse in their expressions of God's love and God's kindness and God's forgiveness in God's Christ because we live in this particular epoch. But I, I want us to see as we are trying to glean benefit from the Old Testament because this is written for our instruction but the truth that God is gracious and loving and merciful in Christ Jesus does not nullify the truth that we find in this passage. 
because what we looked at in chapter 11 verses 14 essentially is the gospel promise in 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 shadowy form and then we have from this promise of i will save you i will convert you i will bring you into my land and we will dwell together that's gospel and then we have this judgment for sinners that persist in their sins i don't want us to, to as we live in the new testament epoch to say well we have the fullness of the gospel true true they had the gospel in type in shadow but that didn't negate god's telling them for those that persist in their sin and they don't turn to me they won't have mercy they'll have justice so the truth that god is loving and patient and kind and forgiving doesn't nullify or negate that God still, the very same God, he still does in fact and will in fact judge those that persist in their sin and they don't turn to him in repentance and faith. In other words, I would much rather preach, I really would, I would much rather preach a mercy passage than a judgment passage. Maybe there was a time in my life, I hope there wasn't, but maybe there was. But it's not now. It hasn't been, it hasn't been me for at least 10 years. I would much rather preach forgiveness and grace and love and long-suffering. However, we don't want to make an idol of one truth and deny the other truths. Every truth of God is true. And so, is God holy and just to condemn those who persist in sin? Yes. Is he merciful to those who find mercy for their sins in Christ? Yes. Both are true. And so it's not as if we're speaking out of both sides of our mouth. God says upon some, he'll have mercy. And God says on the rest, he will have justice. I I, I would say this from the passage, though. When we look at these two truths of God, they're both true. So the fire on Mount Sinai is as true as John 3.16. Both true. I would say not only can we not be lopsided in our theology holding one but not the other, we should hold God's truths in the measure in which God expresses them. In other words, if God says something is fundamental or primary, that should be fundamental or primary to our belief. We're not, we're not denying those other things, but we should major on the majors and if, if, if God speaks infrequently on a thing, that perhaps should not be our most favorite thing. Some of you all may have picked up this morning in my Sunday school. I went home and told my wife. She said, well, what was Sunday school? I said, I taught on something that I'm not terribly good at, <laughs> which is the covenant of works. And there's precious little in the Bible written on the covenant of works. That I believe in the covenant of works as I understand it. But it's not something that looms large in my own personal thought. And God doesn't express himself a lot on that. And what we find here is that God repeatedly says, I actually do, in fact, intend to judge those who persist in their sins. So I don't think it would be wrong for us to say, if we were trying to quantify the extent in which God condemns sin, in promises that he will judge sin in sinners. It would be, I think, I think we would be mistaken if we said, you know, God almost never says that in the Bible. She's never there. Never, he only says it in the Old Testament. He never says it in the New Testament. I, I, I don't think that would be an accurate statement. And so given that we should maintain the mercy of God, 
in Christ and the justice of God apart from Christ, I, I would argue that there probably is a paucity of judgment, teaching, and preaching, both right, and, right content and even right tone. The, I, I, I believe there is a right tone to preaching the judgment of God. And generally, I'm inclined to think it would be with a broken spirit and a contrite heart, because were it not for God's grace, we all deserve um, God's judgment. And so the obvious danger for the people in view here, they've just listened to in Ezekiel eleven fourteen through whatever it was, 20-something sermon, God intends to be merciful and save sinners, save you from Babylon and make you his children, his true spiritual children. It, the, 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 possible, uh, the possible mistake that the people would make hearing this is, great, great. God loves to save sinners. I love sin. Everyone's happy. People do that. This is one of the dangers of that the Campus Crusade for Christ kids, I, I think they call it now, you can't say Campus Crusade for Christ anymore because that's, too, I suppose, too biblical. They, they, don't, they call themselves crew, I think. C-R-U. You take out anything to do with crew. Yes, that's cool. But I, I, I digress. The kids would say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I would think, great. God loves to save sinners and I love to sin and everyone's happy. This sermon that Ezekiel is called to preach would, um, would convince them of otherwise. That God's promise to have mercy on some uh, is not necessarily a license for people to live in their sins, which of course would be the danger. Now, these particular people, um, I think, were in danger of that. But God had been busy telling his people over and over again that the people of God, and we see it the way that he refers to the house of Israel, he says they're stiff-necked and they're rebellious. Well, I want us to see something about our our God in the in this particular sermon. I know we're just looking at it kind of thematically. God has been telling the people of God, turn from your sins, turn to me, turn from your sins, turn to me, repeatedly for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, from prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. Many times, even among the people of God, when they hear the judgment of God, they think, oh, God, oh, God, he's so quick to judge. Oh, as soon as I do something wrong, oh, he's quick to, he just smacks me down, he just delights in judging. Is that what we're finding? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You're sinning. Turn from your sin and turn to me. You're sinning. Prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. Sermon after sermon after sermon. And what do the people do to, to the prophets preaching hundreds, thousands of sermons? What do they do to the prophets saying, turn from your, God says, turn from your sins. Turn to him. Why will, why will you die? Live. Turn to him. What do they do to the prophet? We're going to kill you. We're going to kill you. If you tell us to turn from our sin and turn away from our false gods and turn to the true God and walk in holiness of life, we will kill you. And they did, in fact. But what we are looking at is the continuation of that. And when he says that you're stiff-necked and you're rebellious, they're simply refusing. This is the people of God. They're refusing to yield to God. 
And the way that they're refusing to yield to God is they're refusing to yield to the word of God. And the way that they're refusing to yield to the word of God as preached by the man of God. And I, I say that because there are many times we could say, well, I'd listen to God. If God talked to me, I, I would listen to him. But would you listen to him if it was his man telling you his voice? Well, no, because he's not saying his word. It's just that man's view. No, this is actually the people of God um, simply refusing, refusing to yield to God. And there are two competing voices in the world, God's voice and every, everyone's else. And the, the contest is who, whose voice will you yield to? Whose will will be triumphant? Will it be God's will or will it be man's will, self-will? And what the people have shown themselves to be, these again are the professed people of God, that they, they, will, they will have their own will. They will. I don't know if you've ever tried to help someone that's been persistent in their sin, persistent in their sin, and you tell them this is the truth of it, this, these are the dangers of it, this is the pain of it, this is it, and this is you. This is the truth of it. And you've, you've tried to help them turn from the will of that to perhaps embrace God's will, which is a more excellent way. And the people stubbornly refuse. No, I will have this. That, that's these people. And as was said, God has sent them countless, countless and this shows us, and, even, and we're going to have to look at this, what I'm saying, through the right lenses. Yes, God says you're going to go to exile. After hundreds and hundreds of years saying, stop, stop. God is so, even in this judgment sermon, he's so long-suffering. My wife and I had worship today, and we were praying, and, and she prayed, um, God, I thank you, because in our family worship We'll do things like, I'll ask her, or when my kids were in the house, give me some things that you're thankful for, the things you want to pray to God for. In family worship, we do confessions of sin. And she said, oh God, I'm so thankful that you don't treat us as our sins deserve, which is so true. And when we, when we look at these people, the wages of sin is what? Death. And God delays and delays. He's so long-suffering even, even in this promise, you're going into exile. I don't want us to miss that God is so long-suffering. And he's long-suffering to people that he says are stiff-necked. Look what he calls them. You're a rebellious house. Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, God inspires him. Moses, in 1450, is inspired by God. Tell Israel, they're a stiff-necked, rebellious house. Ezekiel writes what? Circa 600? So how many years is that? 800 years? Some, yeah, 800 years. So 800 years later, the people are still what? This is why unless we're converted to God in Christ, people do not improve. I know we can put guys on the moon and we can do amazing surgeries. I just went and spoke with our brother, Tim, about his new valve. And I thought, wow. What an amazing time and land we live in that we can do these amazing things. It's true. We can, men, unconverted people can do, and converting people for that matter can do amazing things. But religiously and morally, you could wait 8 million years 
and man simply will not change. Apart from the converting God of uh, grace of God in Christ, they simply will not. They are stiff-necked and they're rebellious. But look at the again the long suffering and patience of God. Judgment is coming eight hundred years later, and the people will even use the delay to taunt God. Oh, judgment! Where's judgment? It, it, it's stunning, and yet notwithstanding even their taunt of God for His patience in bringing judgment, what does He do? He persists. He persists. There's a place which God says, I'm not, like, I'm not like you. You think that I'm like you, but I'm not like you. We, we thank God that God is not like us. If, if God were even close to like us, what would, what would happen to these people? What would have happened to Adam and Eve? If he were even close to us, our patience level, I can't sit in the checkout line to get a Chick-fil-A sandwich because I have no patience. You have to hit it just right to get your chicken sandwich or you're sitting in line. The people would be gone, but not the Lord, even when they're taunting him. And so he is bringing yet again another word to them. And he tells them all along, you've been rebelling against my word and you've been persisting in um, your sin. I want us to see some implications of their rebellion this rebellious, stubborn, stiff-necked. Being stubborn and stiff-necked, it, it teaches us that the sin that they're involved in is, um, as my grandmother used to say, with a high hand. And when you sin with a high hand, it means you know it's a sin. You know it's a sin. You know God says not to do it, you, and you intend to do it, and there's nothing that God says that, to convince you. The carrot won't do it. I promise mercy. Nope, not stopping. And the rod won't do it. I'm going to take you off to judgment. Nope, not stopping. So the carrot won't work and the stick won't work. Won't work. That's sinning with a high hand. And, and, and so sometimes the way that we excuse sin is something like this. I didn't know you told me to not worship false gods. I didn't know that you didn't want me to create false idol centers. I didn't know you didn't want me to love money as the people of God here were doing. I, I just, I slipped. It was one time, maybe two times. And sorry, it was just, sorry. No. This is year in, year out, persisted in, and, and will not yield. This is with full knowledge, full will, they will have their sin. This is why I say, there's mercy from God in Christ. For those that say, I will not have this man to rule over me. I will have my sin. There exists nothing but judgment to come. And I would argue even in that, God still is merciful. Now, God now is going to have um, Ezekiel act out another sermon. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more in more detail. But... Um, they're going to be able to see the word of God. He's going to act it out. I would argue he's speaking infant language as a form of judgment against them, but he still does it nevertheless. Um, I want you to see something about the stubbornness of the people and even God's delay in judgment. He'll bring it. Um, Sometimes people say something like this. Well, if I could see, this is what the people are using as a taunt back to God. So, okay, you're sending us all these prophets who tell us that there's judgment for sin. We don't see it. 
We simply don't see it. Now, if we could see the judgment of God, then we would believe it. What do you think about that? Is seeing believing? If you could see God judging sinners, would you then believe when God promises mercy in Christ or when God promises judgment apart from Christ? If you could see it, would you believe it? In other words, their, their criticism against God is all you do is just tell us. You give us the word. We want more than the word. We want to see it. And if we could see it, we would believe it. What, what, what do you think about that? That's their taunt. God is all talk and no action. We have not seen God act. Beloved, is that true? We use that fancy word, incongruous epistemology. It means messed up thinking. <laughs> it means you deny things that you know to be true. Have the people of God not seen God's judgment uh, uh, against persistent sin? No, they certainly have. And I want us to think of something. Uh, Judah is the younger sister. Israel is the older sister. And uh, Judah is what? The southern kingdom. Israel is the northern kingdom. Capital Samaria. Um, the, the younger sister, 100 years before this, uh, watched their older sister go into Assyrian captivity for the very same reason. They were persisting in paganish sin, living like a Gentile. God says, I won't have my, my people live like Gentiles. Off you go to the Gentiles. And he promised they'd get taken away. It's like a younger sister watching the older sister get violently taken away into exile a few years earlier and saying, I've never seen the judgment of God for the persistence in sin. Never seen it. Why didn't you see it? Your, your very own sister was taken away. God promised a thing and you witnessed a thing. And I, I want us to see, this is the... Um, this is both the deception of our hearts, and I would say it shows the bias and the enmity of hard hearts against God. We can't even understand the word of God unless God opens our hearts. Not only did they watch their older sister get taken into captivity for their sin, which is what's happening here. Remember Babylon, uh, the, the Babylonian exile? The people of God, go they go into captivity in three waves. I think this is the final wave. And they come back. They're, they're, they're repatriated in three successive waves. They've seen two waves go off into Babylon. So not only did you see your older sister go 100 years before you, you're watching your friends and neighbors go like a few years before you and saying, so where's this judgment? Where, where's this exile? You're always talking. We've never seen anything. Where is it? I mean, where it is. They took your cousin two weeks, two weeks ago. This is why I say we could live for 8,000, 8 million years unless God converts us by giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. Man doesn't change. And you remember, the Lord Jesus Christ has a parable of a rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus goes to heaven, the rich man goes to hell. And the rich man's in hell and he says to Jesus, Jesus, Abraham's bosom, Jesus, I have five brothers and send someone back from the dead. And to, to talk to them so they don't come here. And what does Jesus say? Oh, no, no. They could see someone come back from the dead. They wouldn't believe. If they have Moses, the Bible, if they have the word of God and won't believe the, the word of God, they won't believe if someone comes back from the dead. I want you to think of John 11. Seeing is not believing. Seeing is not believing. Believing is a gift of God. So these people are saying, we've never seen 
they're, they're not telling the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ raises Lazarus from the dead. How long was Lazarus dead? Four days. And remember what the sister says? Was it Martha? He stink, Lord, he stinketh, or something like that. It's not even funny. I preached a funeral many, many years ago where the, the, um, the wife was, um, she was poor. She, couldn't have, she didn't want to pay for the embalming. If you've ever had to deal with the process, it can be quite expensive. And she didn't want to pay for the embalming, so she didn't have her husband embalmed. And because I'm the minister, I go places and see things that people don't see. They open the casket after three or four days. And I never forgot that. And that's this. So that's him. God raised a man, God in the flesh raised a man that was already decaying. And he raised him from the dead. And what did a great number of the people that saw Jesus raise a man already decaying from the dead? What did a great many of the people do? They went to the Pharisees and said, we have to kill this guy. We have to kill this guy. You see, when people say, well, if I could see Jesus, I would believe in him. Of course I would. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. The natural man is at enmity with God. So the people of God are saying, we've never seen his judgment. You keep telling judgment. We've never seen it. That's not true. And God still is persistent in his long suffering. He sends his ministers, his preachers, his prophets, and they're preaching, preaching, preaching. I've already mentioned that he's told to preach this acted out sermon. We've seen him do this two, three, four times already. I think in chapter two, he has a sermon where he's told to go in his house and the people are supposed to tie him up. And, um, and then in chapter four, you remember chapter four, he, he literally does what we did when we were boys. We would like have little figures and make little war scenes. He's told to make a little clay figurines and uh, a clay city of Jerusalem and to set his face against it and so on, have a little siege. He, he preached a, a judgment sermon that the people of God will be besieged by the Babylonians. And then he's told to um, eat. We've talked about um, Ezekiel bread. Ezekiel bread is famine bread. I, I read something in the news the other day uh, concerning the, the war in the Ukraine, which is inevitable that there are people that are starving. Because when war happens, you don't have access to food. And so when Ezekiel was eating his Ezekiel bread, it's starvation rations. It's starvation food. And he's in a war. They're being besieged. And over and over and over again, God says, the judgment is coming. The judgment is coming. And and when they say, where is his coming? I would argue it's, it's almost a taunt of God. But doesn't Peter pick up, I forget whether it's first or second Peter, he says, some will say, so where is, where, is the, where is his coming? Oh, people have been saying Jesus is going to come back, judge the world in truth and righteousness for thousands of years. Where is his coming? And, and they're doing the very same thing. And what I find, if you look at this passage rightly, even with the justice passage that's so dominant, if you look at it rightly, you can see the threat of mercy. None of us... It's been said that you know a person's true inclination when you see that person has power. They've said, as applied to religious power, you know what a person believes religiously when they hold power as a group, physical, political power, what they really believe. 
if, a, if, if we think of certain kinds of religions, what they act like when they're weak, physically, politically, they act one way. But when they get in power, they would act another way. And what, what we are looking at here is God speaking to these people and telling them that the judgment is coming, the judgment is coming, and they are, prior to this, they were living luxuriously, they were powerful, and God is going to bring them very, very low that they would listen to him. As regards to the, as regards to the language being of the sermon being enacted, acted out, um, Isaiah had to do this. I think maybe Micah. Isaiah had to preach naked for two years. I think he was naked, naked. Um, Micah had to, it was one of the other prophets had to preach naked. And you think, why would they preach naked? Um, why would he be called to do that? The very same reason. Oftentimes the people were taken away into captivity naked. It was to degrade them, to humiliate them. And so what he's doing, he's acting out this um, sermon of judgment, of exile. I would argue he's doing this because the people of God have not listened to the preaching of the clear word of God like adults. He's going to speak to them like children. Yes, I understand the difference in epochs, but I would argue this, even in this is a little bit of a judgment of God against them. You won't listen to when I speak to you as adults, I'll speak to you like children. And he testifies what he's going to do. And um, Ezekiel is told to pack his bags, dig a hole through the, the, the wall, creep out in the day, creep out in night to do it in front of the people. And the people are going to ask you, what is this that you're doing? Back to Ezekiel. He's a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. And God says, I want you to tell them that. And just as regards to Ezekiel's ministry, which is it's a tough ministry, he's faithful to do it. I don't know if you've ever done something which is frustrating and um, it perhaps it's not, it's not giving you what you thought initially. It's, you, it's not as well received as you thought. Here is a man that all he, he's essentially going to see. Judgment, 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 judgment. God told Isaiah, go preach to the people. Most of the people aren't going to listen to you. How, how many of us would persist in a message from God that the bulk of the people said, I'm not going to listen to you at all. Day in, day out, day in, day out. Abuse, 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 abuse. And what, is, what, what does God's man do? He does it. He does it. God holds his herald, Ezekiel, accountable to be faithful to his word and he doesn't hold Ezekiel responsible for the results we are sowers of seed all of us as Christians we sow the seed of God's word we give people the promise of the gospel we, we sow it we're not responsible for who's converted we're, we are not responsible for the growth we tell people about the holiness of God the judgment of God to come the free offer of, of eternal life in Christ Jesus, and that we're, we're responsible to be faithful. We are not responsible for the results. And God calls his man, us as his people, to persist in living for him, even in the face of tremendous discouragement. This is why I think it's so necessary to gather 
with the brothers and sisters on the Lord's Day. And for us, as this morning I was, argue, I was arguing at least some part, some in part from J.C. Ryle, which his words were so pithy to me, that our, our religion should make us more Christ-like, for real. We as Christians should be loving and kind and gentle and encouraging. Yes, there's a time to correct and rebuke. I admit that. But when we come into the Lord's house, the world is such a discouraging place. It's so frustrating. The church should be the one place, even for one day, that we could bear one another's burdens. Just no extra charge for that. And so God sends his man to be faithful. He tells them, creep out through the wall. And uh, he says, it's, this is a both an enacted ser- sermon against the prince and against the people for their unfaithfulness. So from the high to the low, they're unfaithful. Then you have this business of uh, even the king is going to, the prince is going to, uh, and it, I forget the word for this, nissi, I think, means the lifted up one, is going to creep out with a bag of stuff over his shoulder. And this is um, Zedekiah. And there's a reason why he's going to be taken off into Babylonian captivity, um, but he's not going to see it. Before he gets taken off, is it Isaiah? One of them. Jeremiah. Jeremiah. There's a chapter in Jeremiah. I want to say Jeremiah chapter 25 that details this. Um, his, he, he, I think they kill his sons and he witnesses it and then they blind him. So that's the last thing he's ever going to see when they kill his boys. And then he's going to be taken off into captivity, blinded. That's a promise. And God says, I'm taking the prince, I'm taking the people, and I want you to see what the, every, every person is carrying. I think Babylon is like from, from Jerusalem, depending on who you read, it's like 700 to 900 to 1,000 miles. They're going to walk there. And sometimes the Babylonians would t- say, take the clothes on your back or whatever you can carry because that's what you're going to live on. From high to low, what does everybody have? From the rich man to the poor man, the clothes on their back and a sack, a bag. One of the denunciations that God had said to his people when they were rich, you're trusting in your riches. No, we're not. Yes, you are. The love of money is the root of all evil. Your things, your stuff, your money has become your God. One of the things that we do as the people of God, which is why we read paragraph five, I'm taking this not particularly as God's expression of justice against the unbeliever. I want to look at it as God's fatherly chastisement to the erring believer. That's just what I want to look at. When we make something in a, of, an, of an idol, an idol of something, we provoke God to take it away. Yes, to the unbelieving here, this will be judgment. I'm going to take away your God and I'm going to take away your life. But to God's elect, God says, I'm going to take away your idol and I'm going to preserve your life. There is a line in here. It says, I'll keep some of you alive. There's the encouragement. So when you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have eyes of faith. You could look at judgment, 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 judgment. Well, there it is. I'll preserve a people. I'll preserve a remnant. There I am, right there. If you're not converted, you just look at this and say, more judgment, more judgment. But when you know Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, what do you see? Mercy, grace, long-suffering. There it is. But I'm going to go off in Babylon. Yes, but I'm going to keep you alive. Remember what we said last week? And I'm going to save you. And I'm going to give you eyes to see. And you'll be my son, my daughter. Beloved, this is true. We should teach God 
is holy to our family and our friends, we should teach them the truth that holy God will judge sin, that there is coming a day when God says, as he says here, time is up. There is a day coming. And we should be faithful that, with that. I don't often quote J. Vernon McGee, say what you want. He was a country boy, but I think he was a country boy that was very, in many, many ways, um, very faithful to God's word. Yes, he was a dispensational Baptist. I get it. But he was a fabulous father in the faith. He said one time, I used to listen to him constantly. He said um, he never joked about hell. He, He never joked about hell. Never joked about judgment. It always broke his heart. I think when we share this kind of a truth with people, um, we should say it with a tear in our eye and with a tremble in our voice. And then we should be equally, if not more fervent in our expressions, but God will save some. God is a merciful God, and we should be keen to to live out that truth. Uh, May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.